0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our weekly podcast here at Orchards Church. If you're new, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. We didn't manage to record the sermon this weekend, so I thought I would just sit down here uh, with my computer and walk through my notes of the sermon so that if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, um, this is an opportunity to kind of engage with the text of what we went over. So um, we'll go ahead and dive in. So what uh today's text is genesis 2 4 through 25 now i uh, had a later read it on sunday all the way through but i won't subject you to me doing that uh, on this podcast but uh, it's a great passage please go read it if you haven't yet or listen to it um if you if you're um, driving in the car or something um but in our series we kind of have two goals and the first goal is that we really wanna understand what's going on in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Because what happens in the first few pages of Genesis is something that translates through to the rest of the Bible. So as you read the rest of the Bible, you start seeing Genesis language popping up everywhere. And so as you go through the Bible and see that Genesis language, what you're meant to do is take all the understanding you have of Genesis and bring it into that passage then wherever you are. so it's really an equipping series to help us as we read the rest of the scriptures. And a second goal is to add to our hermeneutical toolbox. Um, As we said earlier in the series, hermeneutics is just um, a Greek word for interpretation. And it's specifically about interpreting the Bible where we're trying to understand what it would have meant to its original audience. And then we can make the next step of interpreting what would it mean then to you and I today. And so those are kind of some of the goals of the series. And um, I think this text is a really helpful text uh, for diving into that a little bit, because actually what we see happen here in Genesis 2 compared to Genesis 1 is lots of differences in the creation narrative. And I've seen those differences used as an argument against Christianity or against the Bible as to why trust the Bible when the beginning pages have two different stories about how creation came about. And here's just a few examples of differences in in the two creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So number one, um, humans actually come last. They're the last created thing in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, they're the first created thing. Um, In Genesis 1, animals come before humans. In Genesis 2, they come after humans. Um, And then Genesis 1 happens in very clear seven days and then Genesis 2 either happens in one day or has no time markers at all. Um, The ESV translation of Genesis 2.4 says this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you catch that? In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I think it can be pretty easily argued that You know, that could be meant back in the day or way back when or something along those lines. Um, And I think some translations, many translations go that route. But it is also the word for day in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Regardless, though, it's it's a pretty massive difference. Genesis 1, you've got seven clear days. Genesis 2, you have either one day or no real time markers and all creation kind of just happens. Um, And then another major difference is Genesis 1 begins where Yahweh is hovering over um, the chaos waters, and then he um, brings order out of the chaos from the waters. Well, Genesis 2 begins in the barren desert, and then life and garden and humanity and civilization are then brought out of the chaos of the barren arid wasteland. So one begins over the chaos waters, another begins over the desert or the barren wasteland. Um, and I think something that <clears throat> the main challenge is actually not against the text, but it's rather our, our understanding, our interpretation of the text. And because what what I've seen many Christians do is hold so fast to a chronological uh, Priority when coming to the text that we w- what I've seen people try to do is say well Genesis one happens first and then Genesis two happens um, because we're so dedicated to chronology and what, what I mean by that is we want chronology and everything when, when we're reading a mo- or when we're reading a book or when we're watching a movie we want things to happen in the correct order that they actually happen and that's totally fine but that is a cultural preference that we're bringing to the table. That's not always the case with the biblical author. Sometimes they have a different priority in mind. A great example of this is the book of Matthew. If you look, if you compare the book of Matthew and the events in the book of Matthew compared to Mark and to Luke, Mark and Luke have a very chronological order of events. This happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And you get to Matthew and the events are all over the place. And you go, well, is Matthew not the word of God? Can we not trust the book of Matthew because it's not chronological? And the answer is no, why? Absolutely not. Of course we can trust Matthew. His priority as an author is not chronology. His priority as an author is the five discourses of Jesus that we see in the book of Matthew. And so as we are going through the book of Matthew, we shouldn't be offended or upset that the order is different because that's not his priority. His priority is these five discourses. Similarly, uh, the author of Genesis's priority is not for us to look at Genesis 1 and then go to Genesis 2 and presume chronology on top of it. Uh, rather, uh, how it would have been received is two different lenses on the same event. Where Genesis 1 is an ordering of chaos from the cosmic level, Genesis 2 is an ordering of chaos at the terrestrial level. Um, we, we see, we see the creation story from two different perspectives. And we even see this reality reflected in the usage of God's name. In Genesis 1, he's called Elohim. In Genesis 2, he's called Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh Elohim as a, as a phrase, as a name, appears 35 times in the Old Testament, and 19 of those times are in Genesis 2 and 3. What we're seeing here is the personal name of Yahweh brought down Uh, to humanity. This is the transcendence and eminence of God. Um, And so, uh, if Genesis 1 is meant to be an ordering of um, the cosmos, and Genesis 2 is an ordering of the terrestrial realm, with that lens then, what is the author trying to communicate to us um, from that perspective and from that lens? And I think that the thing that leaps off the page to me, one of them anyways, is humanity. Is Humanity is seemingly the focus of Genesis 2, where God spends a lot of thought and energy and time and relationship is with humanity, creating humanity, placing humanity in the garden, um, giving humanity work to do while they're in the garden, um, et cetera. And um, so if that's the focus is humanity, then I, I, I want to kind of pause on the larger conversation and dive into what, what is the author trying to get after with this, um, with this particular focus on the terrestrial level, with this focus on humanity. And when I focus, oh, and the way I want to focus us is by looking at what we were supposed to do. So if you look at Genesis 2, verse 15, it says this the Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and maintain it. So that's great. Uh, A couple things to note here. One is, uh, Adam was not created in the garden of Eden. I think sometimes that's how we picture it, but it looks like he was created somewhere else. And then God takes him and places him in, in the garden in Eden. Uh, two other things I want to note about this passage. Number one is we think of the Garden of Eden being called Eden, like the name of the garden was Eden, but that wasn't the case at all. It's the garden that's in Eden. It's the land of Eden is where this garden is. And then a third thing I want to point out, I think that's fascinating about this particular text, is you guys notice the Net Bible calls it the Orchard in Eden. It's called the Orchard in Eden because of the fruit trees that are placed around it. I I think, I think that's really, I think that's really cool because look at verse two, eight, um, the Lord, God planted an orchard. Again, this is in that Bible. So they're calling it an orchard, but let's just pretend they said garden, planted a garden in the East in Eden. And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord, God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil. Every tree was pleasing to look at and good for food. So the plants of the garden are trees. So what do we call a cultivated area with uh, fruit-bearing trees growing together? An orchard, which I think is very appropriate considering our name as Orchard's Church. I like that a lot. Anyways, I think those are some interesting thoughts about Genesis 2.15. But there's something that I want to look at in particular about Genesis uh, 2.15. And that's the purpose of the man who's placed in the garden. He's placed in the orchard, I should say, in Eden to care for it and maintain it. Uh, So the word um, uh, for um, working it or caring for it um, is uh, the word uh, abad. It means to labor. It means to do work. um, And uh, to to care for it is really important. You're working working hard at. And then to maintain it, or other translations say to keep it or to guard it, is the word shamar. And that means to keep, to guard, to observe. Now, what's interesting is these words are used independently of each other all over the Bible. But where they're actually used in a pair, in conjunction together, uh, they're used to describe the priesthood, which is really, it's fascinating. So if you're reading through Genesis, you get to Genesis 1, you go, oh, they're meant to work it and to keep it. Or to care for it and to maintain it. That sounds fine. That's great. But then you get later on, you get to where you know, particularly in Exodus, where they're talking about the tabernacle or in first chronicles in the temple, you know, that you realize, oh, these, this pairing of Abad and Shamar is used of the priesthood. And then when you remember the hermeneutical tool of how the Jews would read is that they would read and reread and they're looking for themes and ideas to pick up on and trace these threads throughout the scriptures. When they go back then to Genesis and read and they see these words paired just like they were paired with the priesthood, they start wondering to themselves, were Adam and Eve meant to be priests in Eden? And I think that's a really interesting and fascinating thought. And I believe that's actually where the text is pointing us If we're reading the Bible the way the ancient Hebrews would have been reading it, we would be reading going, oh, sure. Oh, look at that interesting idea. When these verbs are used together, Shamar and Abad, it's about the priesthood. Huh, Adam and Eve must have been priests in Eden, which I think think is fantastic. But then a question arises in my mind is, what was the role of a priest before sin enters the world? Because in my mind, the role of a priest is to mediate between God and humanity and help humanity absolve its sins before God. I think there's truth to that, but what's the job of a priest before sin enters the picture? What's a priest meant to do? And I think these words are actually really helpful for us to care for and maintain God's garden. They they tend to it. They They, they, they care for it. And, and then they work, right? They, they, not only are they just maintaining it, but they're actually going above and beyond and they're doing work for it. They, they're, they're doing the abad. They're keeping it. They're doing shamar. They're, they're keeping and maintaining what God has already done. And they're adding to it. They're adding to the work that He's already accomplished. And we see this really clearly as a job that God gives Adam to do is to name the animals. What do we see Yahweh doing? In Genesis 1, he was naming the day, he was naming the night. Uh, we, we see him naming these things. And now we see his invitation to humanity to join him in maintaining and caring and working for God's work and partnering with God in his work. So uh, that's what we see, this, this priestly imagery of Adam. So it's actually even fascinating to compare Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 now, is Genesis 1 is giving this royal imagery for humanity. where Humanity is meant to rule alongside Yahweh, partnering with Yahweh. And then in Genesis 2, we see this priestly imagery for humanity, maintaining and working what God has already accomplished. And so what we're meant to do here is, as we're reading, is to start pairing these ideas of humanity being some kind of royal priests, or some might even say a royal priesthood, meant to be image bearers who rule and join God and ruling over the whole earth by making communities of image bearers who join God in his work over the whole earth. So we're we're meant to be these royal priests, which is a massive biblical theme. Um, We see figures who act as royal priests all throughout the Bible. So you've got Adam in the garden who's meant to rule, and to be a priest, you have Noah who's in charge, and uh, especially after the flood, and then also right after the flood, making an altar to Yahweh uh, at the gate of the, or at the door of the ark. Um, you see Abraham leading his family, ruling over his family, and then building an altar at the Oaks of Moray. And then it's you're supposed to start picking up on, oh yeah, okay, great. Yeah, that guy kind of does a priestly thing and he does a kingly thing. Okay, that's an interesting pairing. Oh, that guy does the same thing. Oh, that's interesting. But then you get to Genesis 14 and suddenly there's a guy who's actually explicitly called a king and a priest and he's this guy called Melchizedek. So I'm gonna read Genesis 14, 17 through 20. It says this, after Abraham returned from defeating, and these names, just forgive me, Kidolaomer and the kings who were with them, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh, known as the king's Valley. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. OK, So there's this guy. It's the first time we've met him. It's verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Okay, there's this king called Melchizedek. Then it says, "Now he was a priest of the Most high God." Interesting. So if we have this theme going where we're reading and rereading the text, we have this theme building in our minds of a royal priesthood, of king priests. And then we get to Genesis four eighteen, and we meet a king priest. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was a priest of the most high God. Verse 19, he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by the most high God, creator of heaven and earth. Ding, 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 more Genesis language. Worthy of praise is the most high God who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave Melchizedek a 10th of everything. So Abram meets this king and then treats him like a priest, giving him a tithe, giving him a 10th of everything that he had just won. Interesting. And you know, there's only one other place that mentions Melchizedek in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 110. And if you remember, Jesus used this psalm to point to prophecy in the Old Testament about himself. This is uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. Here's the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so Jesus's argument here about this verse is if David is saying, my Lord, who must be Yahweh, is talking to my other Lord who is in between David and Yahweh, that there's another Lord in between there. It must be the son of man. It must be the Messiah, the Christ. And then verse four says this. So we know, especially because Jesus himself references it, that this Psalm is about Jesus. Then uh, let's look at verse four. The Lord makes this promise on oath and will not revoke it. You are an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. Oh, So Psalm 110 says, uh, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I think that's that's really fascinating. Uh, So suddenly we see that Jesus is also one of these royal priests. And uh, we see this actually even um, quoted uh, in Hebrews seven, this is Hebrews seven seventeen. For here is a testimony about him, talking about Jesus. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, uh, and then I'm gonna skip down to verse twenty one. But Jesus did so with a sworn affirmation by the one who said to him, "The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind." You are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So Jesus, in his coming, acts as a priest in this order of melchizedek and hebrews earlier in the chapter hebrews 7 1 uh he even gives a description about why melchizedek is significant this hebrews 7 1 now this is melchizedek king of salem priest of the most high god met abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him to him also abraham apportioned a tithe of everything his name first means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek itself means king of righteousness. Then he's also king of, oh sorry, his name first means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, that is king of peace. So Melchizedek is his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, and then he's also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Another interesting note is that Salem was what they think the original name was for Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting if he's the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, um, and the king of righteousness, and he's a royal priest. And then we see that Jesus is a royal priest in that same vein in the order of Melchizedek. And then we find out that through Jesus, he's established a new covenant for us to all be royal priests in the order of Melchizedek. So now we suddenly find ourselves in this great long line, tying ourselves all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden as the original Royal priests. So then the question arises, what's our job, what are we meant to do? And the conclusion uh, that we came to on Sunday is that we are meant to be like our Royal priest, to be like our King Jesus. To take the next step in our discipleship pathway to becoming more and more like our rabbi, to becoming as royal priests more and more like the perfect royal priest. And if we go all the way back to what we were supposed to do in the garden, we were meant to keep, we're meant to maintain what God has already done, and we're meant to work in it. We're meant to go and grow and add in partnership with Yahweh to the work that he's already accomplished while we maintain what he's already done. We're meant to cultivate in the lives of our gardens, fruit for his kingdom. And by the way, I think the temptation for all of us is to want to do this and believe that this is only really possible in an ideal state, in a perfect garden-like state. But the reality is it's just not the case. Um, Particularly in the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel uh, under subjugation or exiled, and finding Eden like places in the midst of the wilderness or in the midst of exile. Um, Genesis 47 when the Israelites move into Egypt, they move into the land of Goshen, which is described as this really bountiful, fruitful place. Uh, one of the best places uh, it's in the Nile Delta, just full of water where you can grow lots of crops it's kind of, you know, so in, in exile, they live in an Eden-like place. And then, of course, they're called to the promised land, which is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Lots of, uh, lots of beautiful, evocative imagery of um, God's provision and providing resources for his people. Or even, uh, but that's not when they're in exile. What about Jeremiah 29, when the Israelites are exiled to Babylon? And then this is verse 4. Of Jeremiah 29. The Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, says to all those he sent into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, allow your daughters to get married, so they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number, do not dwindle do away. Work to see that in the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. Did you, catch, did you catch that in verse five? Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. We're seeing Genesis language, we're seeing Eden language here as a, as a commission, as a call for the nation of Israel while they're in exile. And that's what's true for you and me. When life is hard, when life is challenging, When we're feeling oppressed or downtrodden or exiled from where we want to be in those places, our calling of cultivating and working alongside what God has already done does not go away. In fact, it's even more imperative in those places. We know one day we'll get to return to the promised land when all things will be made new. But right now in exile, we must continue to cultivate and to grow in the work that God is doing in the gardens of our lives. And what does creating a garden-like community look like in your life? Or how can you maintain the goodness of God and uh, the work that he's already done in your life and expand it to others? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what that means for you. I, I would love for us to spark, our, to have our imagination sparked by this conversation and to think, what could I do to bless and to serve someone else. What could I do? And hopefully the Lord is bringing something to your mind. Uh, Maybe it's a relationship with someone. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's the neighborhood you've been placed in. Uh, Maybe it's your workplace. And actually it's probably all of those things. And may we just keep our eyes open um, to see what God is doing in and among us and for us. And, Uh, I, I think God is providing moments for us to engage in all the time. And the question is, are we listening enough to engage in those moments to cultivate and maintain the work that God is already doing? I, uh, maybe six months ago, I was down at the park and I was talking to this gal and, uh, her kids were playing with my kids and she said this statement. It was this moment where I should have engaged and I did not engage, um, where she said, "Yeah, we moved a couple of years ago, uh, right before COVID hit, or right at the beginning of COVID, and so we know nobody. We really have no friends." And I, I just stood there. I, I kind of agreed with her. That's so hard. But I didn't invite her and her family over to my home. I didn't give my phone number. I didn't get her phone number. I didn't do any of these things. I just let the moment pass me by. and thankfully, months later, um, I managed to get uh, her husband's phone number. We ended up having them over for dinner a few weeks ago. And it was really delightful. And I'm so glad we did. But that was catching up to something that was an opportunity that God had provided ages ago that I did not follow through on um, at the time. And I did not take him up on in that moment. And we're meant to cultivate and carry on with the work that God is already doing and the opportunities is already planted in our lives. And believe me, we're surrounded by opportunities. If you are, um, if, you, if you're a stay-at-home parent raising kids, you have opportunities all around you at the park, um, at the grocery store, at the coffee shop. If you're working a nine to five, you have opportunities in the office every day. Uh, if you are traveling all the time, you have opportunities on airplanes, you like the opportunities are endless. Just if we're open to looking for the connections that God has cultivated for us in our lives and places in already, what does it mean to cultivate um, and do his work where we already are as uh, royal priests together in the order of Melchizedek? Yeah. So that's the main thrust of the passage. And so, um, yeah, I hope this has been helpful um, and I appreciate everyone participating and joining in Genesis series. We'll, we'll hope to catch you next week. Have a good day.